What the Actual Fork podcast is co-hosted by two intuitive eating registered dietitians, yours truly, Sammy Previtt, owner of Fine Food Freedom, and Jenna Warner, owner of Happy Strong Healthy. We can't stand diet culture bullshit and love keeping it real. Our mission is for all humans to believe that they are made for so much more than chasing a smaller body. We are also here to share with you that food can be fun and pleasurable again. Although we are medical professionals, we are human too. We are not afraid to share our deepest, darkest secrets and how years of our lives were taken by diet culture. We started this podcast so no human has to feel alone in their journey towards food freedom. So get comfy and join us for a casual convo where you can expect to laugh, cry, learn, and grow. Welcome back to another episode of What the Actual Fork podcast. We are so, so, so excited for the conversation that Jenna and I just had with the Elise Resch, who is the co-author of Intuitive Eating. She is a registered dietitian. She's a certified uh, eating disorder dietitian. And she has her private practice in Beverly Hills, California. She has over 39 years of experience specializing in eating disorders, intuitive eating, health at every size. Of course, you know of her through the book, which she co-authored with Evelyn Triboli, Intuitive Eating, um, which just had its fourth edition come out this past year. She also talks about two new publications that just came out like literally a week ago since we recorded this. So I'm going to make you listen to the episode to find out what those are because they're (laughs) super, super exciting. Um, Elise does regular speaking engagements, podcasts, extensive media interviews all over. She's been profiled on NPR, NBC, USA Today, New York Times, Huffington Post, et cetera, et cetera. Elise is nationally known for her work in helping patients break free from diet culture through the intuitive eating process. She mentioned in the episode today that there's over 140 studies now to back intuitive eating, which is pretty incredible. Her philosophy embraces the goal of developing body liberation with the belief that all bodies deserve dignity and reconnecting with one's internal wisdom about eating. She supervises and trains health professionals. She is a certified eating disorder registered dietitian and supervisor a fellow of the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals and a member of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And I cried during this episode. (laughs) And I think like, I feel like I said this right when we intro her on the interview, but like between her and Evelyn Triboli, I don't think there are, and I don't want to speak for you, but there's no two dietitians that have changed our lives more without literally ever meeting them. So I wrote today in like my gratitude journal this morning that like just the fact that we're, we get to spend this time with her and talk to her when she has no idea who we are, but (laughs) she's like changed our lives, which I just think is so freaking cool. Like we stared at her picture on the cover of the book and now like we got to talk to her and and right, right there. (laughs) I mean, it's, I have the chills because it was not only the most like one of the most powerful conversations I've ever had. Um, It was so easy. And she's really just one of those people that makes you feel so comfortable. Um, Her work speaks for itself, but the avenues that we took this conversation are conversations that we've never had before on this podcast. Like it was so much more than intuitive eating, what it is and what it does for a human being. Um, It goes back to 
birth here in this episode today. And we've never done that before. And it's just so cool. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So we're just going to get right into it because this episode takes so many twists and turns and definitely get your journals out, get your phone notes out, because there's going to be some knowledge bombs here that you're going to want to write down. So uh, without further ado, just enjoy our interview with Elise Resch. Welcome back to another episode of What the Actual Fork podcast. We are so excited for this episode because we've already done an episode with the other co-author of Intuitive Eating. So now we feel like it's like all coming together and we have someone who we absolutely worship and has changed how Jenna and I practice and changes has truly changed our hearts, but she hasn't even met us until this very moment. So (laughs) we're so, so excited. So we have Elise Rush with us, um, who is the co-author of Intuitive Eating. Elise, thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. And I know we said that we were going to do your bio at the end, but I think that it's so important to just say right now that you have 39 years of experience specializing in eating disorders, intuitive eating, and health at every size. I mean, that is incredible. Incredible. I can't believe it'll be 40 years next year. I mean, when's the party? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we'll get Sammy to California for that. And I will say also that the intuitive eating part and the health at every size, those were not, you know, those were not known. Those were not names, but they were within me and they finally emerged. So, yes. And now you're spreading that to so many people, which I can't even imagine how amazing that is to see. But so we're going to ask you our first question that we ask most of our guests to kick off. You can take 30 seconds or 30 minutes, Elise, answer however you want. But how did you get to where you are today, both personally and professionally? Um, Obviously you created intuitive eating, but we like most dietitians we have on here, we're like, so have you always been an intuitive eating dietitian? But like you've created it. So we would (laughs) love to hear from you how did you get to where you are today? I think it's really a spiritual process um, in that uh, I was in my late 20s. I had my own eating disorder. It, was, it didn't happen until then. There's reasons why it didn't happen in high school and college, but uh, it didn't happen then. And I was um, part of a family at that time. My former husband's and his wonderful parents, whom I adored, were all, they were all orthorexic. And so I was, you know, into nutrition, had my own eating disorder. And the eating disorder was a uh, diet binge eating disorder, restrict binge, compulsive exercise, that kind of thing. And I think that all set me up to go into nutrition. I was uh, an elementary school teacher straight out of college. I majored in sociology and minored in English and taught school for four years and didn't go back to graduate school until I was 30. So why did I choose nutrition at that point? I was, my son was little, I wasn't having more children because of my eating disorder. And uh, it was, well, what am I going to do with my life? And it just seemed to be the natural thing. I had some friends say, well, why don't you become a nutritionist? You're, you know, you're so into nutrition. And sure, I (laughs) got into graduate school within a couple of months and really had no idea what I was going to do with it. And I actually intended to, by the time I did my traineeship, which was um, at a clinic affiliated with Children's Hospital Los Angeles. It was in a a university affiliated program, Center for Child Development and Developmental Disabilities. And I just thought that's the work I was going to do. I was running the feeding clinic there and 
I loved helping the parents. I loved the kids and it didn't happen. I didn't get those referrals and I got referrals from, you know, typical MDs help this person lose weight. And it was not anything I wanted to do. I didn't want to do it. I'd done my own dieting and I saw the disaster that that, you know, uh, brought to me and just knew in my gut, this is not something I want to do. So how do I help these people with their high cholesterol, with their high blood pressure, with their high blood sugar, whatever that they were being sent for. But of course, many in the medical profession equate that with weight and have them lose weight, which is just so wrong. Anyway, so what did I do? You know, I thought, well, I'll, I'll give them these meal plans because that's what I was taught in graduate school. They're not diets. I'm just giving them an idea of how to have nice balanced eating, but of course, right? And I was the one who was telling them what to eat rather than tuning into them. So my gut said, this is wrong. I didn't know what else to do. And as a couple of years went by with that, I was fortunate enough to stumble onto the non-diet literature that was out there. Intuitive Eating is an anti-diet book, but it was non-diet. And uh, I read Susie Orbach's um, Fat is a Feminist Issue. I read Carol uh, Munter and Jane Hirschman's uh, Overcoming Overeating. I read a little bit of Janine Roth. And I start, things started to percolate. And I thought, okay, this is why none of this works. Uh, because people are restricted, they're deprived, they're binging. I had had that life experience. I knew that the more I was deprived, the more I was, you know, not eating enough or the kinds of foods I like, the more I was binging. So um, I started to think I need to write a book. And um, I don't know whether when Evelyn was on, whether she told you about how we came together on this book, but I think she was working on something. I was working on something. She was in my office one day a week because she lives an hour away and she was using my office. Uh, one of the offices in my office. And uh, one day I saw her and she looked a little unhappy and I said, what's wrong, Evelyn? And she said, oh my goodness, I'm trying to write this book with a psychologist and she can't write. And I knew I was a good writer. I was an English minor. And, and I just said, that's it. I'm going to do it with Evelyn. I didn't really know what her book was about, but I figured that if the psychologist wasn't going to work out, that I could take over that part. Not that I was a psychologist, but I had had a number of years of therapy by then. And loved psychology. And we came together and realized that we had very similar ideas and we collaborated and it was great. So that's how it began. So one of the things that you said in there, I mean, there's so many pieces of that. That's incredible that I want to come back to, but one thing that stuck to me, and it's part of the reason that I, I mean, Sammy is the reason that pushed me over the fence to, you know, start studying intuitive eating. But one of the things that I, that you said where people, you were telling people what to eat versus them listening to their inside. Right. And that is, I just hear, I have these like flashbacks of my early days of my career of people just saying to me, like, just tell me what to eat. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like that is what dietitians are known for. And, and you're changing that single-handedly you and Evelyn. Um, but when you hear that and you see the young dietitians, like learning that in school, I mean, how does that Let's make you feel <laughs> it's upsetting. And then I reflect back, Evelyn, to a, a talk that Evelyn and I gave at Fancy. You know, the food. I was there. You were there. Well, you saw that room. There were over two thousand yeah. people in there. It was, it was the biggest room. Exactly. And so that gives me some hope because there were a lot of young dietitians there, 
and they were excited about this. And so I'm hoping that there's more of the young dietitians out there who are realizing that there's gotta be something different and better and that this is speaking to them. And the others, I hope to get to them one way or the other. You will. (laughs) And now the majority of listeners that listen to our podcast are really already on their intuitive eating journey or definitely heard of it or a little more informed about it, but not everybody. And so we felt like we would be doing a disservice if we did not ask the Elise Fresh, give us your best elevator pitch of what is intuitive eating? What do you throw out at people to kind of hook them? Well, the general concept is it's a self-care path. It's a self-compassionate path. It's based on 10 principles to help one get reconnected with their inner wisdom. I believe that the majority of us are, uh, you know, are born with that wisdom. I mean, there may be some babies with developmental issues that aren't, but, but for the most part, we're, we're born with that and we get so distanced from it. And so intuitive eating brings us back to what we already know inside. However, my best definition is that intuitive eating is a dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and thought. And this comes from uh, the misconception uh, by a lot of people that intuitive eating is just instinct. You just know, you know, you don't have to ever think, you just know. That's part of it. That instinctual part comes from the reptilian part of our brains, the most primitive part that was developed when the dinosaurs were around. And it's the survival part. It's the part that keeps us alive. It's the one that sends the part of us that has no feelings, no thoughts, just, you know, instinctually helps us go for food so that we can stay alive. Well, that's part of it. The other two parts are very important too. Uh, As we developed, as mammals came about, the dogs and cats and cows and horses and all of that, uh, we developed a level of brain functioning called the limbic or the mammalian brain sits on top of the um, that matrix of instinct, which is on top of the brainstem. And so it surrounds it and is on top of it. And it adds a whole other layer of inner knowledge. And also, I mean, maybe coming from our subconscious, some of our emotions and some of our conscious emotions that can impact our, our instincts. And then what figures it all out is the neocortex, which is the you know thinking part of the brain, the cognitive part, and, and what differentiates us from other from the dogs and cats and cows and horses is that we're able to think through things. So when you look at intuitive eating as coming from these three parts of the brain and integrated, you know, it's a mind, body, soul kind of connection. It really helps people understand that we can't just necessarily go by instinct because sometimes we don't have an appetite or sometimes we're stressed out and we want more food for that. Or sometimes we have a cold and which I haven't had in over a year. Thank you masks, which I'll probably always wear Um, in any case, you know, and you lose food doesn't taste so good. And so we have to then be able to have the best self-care by thinking through what's best for us. So that's what intuitive eating is. Mic drop. And I think one of the questions we asked Evelyn, and I'm sure, and maybe, maybe I'm, I should have said I'm sure, curious for you, if you've had stages with this, it's like when you're out to dinner with friends or people that you don't know, do you ever feel defensive when you're talking about what you do? When we oh my goodness, I just, world I just, of diet culture. I just went to a pool party last 
Sunday. And the person who had invited me immediately said to the group, oh, Elise writes books and they're about nutrition. And I went, well, no, <laughs> not really about nutrition. They're anti-diet. They go against, you know, diet culture. I started to talk and, oh, everybody was on some diet and come on and I could never do that. And, and I'm thinking to myself. I really don't want to work right now. (laughs) I'd like to just get into that pool and enjoy it. So, uh, yeah. So sometimes I do feel defensive and sometimes I feel frustrated and sometimes I feel really angry at diet culture because wherever I am, the people I'm with are usually very interesting people have interesting things to talk about if they would just stop worrying and thinking and talking about their bodies and how their bodies aren't good enough. And the people at this party were mostly, you know, somewhere between 50 and 80. And my goodness, they're still worrying about this. So it was very upsetting. That's a, the, and, I, I think we can all agree on that and have uh-huh. similar frustrations. I've completely cut the word dietitian, like almost out of my vocabulary. When uh-huh. people ask me what I do, I say eating disorder counselor, just because like they, they're like, Oh, that doesn't apply to me. And then they stop asking me about it. Because if I say dietitian, they're like, can you help me lose weight? And like, that's not what I do. And then it's like this whole thing. That's just like, oh, I don't want to work. I just want to enjoy but, the pool. And you're making me think about, I have been calling myself a nutrition therapist for a long, long, long time. And you just made me think about, wait a minute, it's not nutrition that I'm necessarily talking about. So I made me think about changing my own title. (laughs) I'm going to plant that little seed with you, Elise, because it it has been crazy to see how people just kind of like stop asking me questions when I say that, which is exactly what I want. So I'm like, great, we're going to go with that for now. Um, Um, but one thing we saw on your site um, was about the spiral of healing ah. and it, it really intrigued us. And then also just how interested you are in inner child work, which is something uh-huh. that I've gotten really interested in Jenna as well. Um, and I think it's so integral with intuitive eating because so many of the clients we work with, you know, their inner child needs reparented because of what they learned around food from a young age. So would love if you could kind of just enlighten our listeners about the spiral of healing and how you kind of came up with this. So these are two of my favorite topics. So thank you. (laughs) So one day I was sitting in my office talking to a client and it just hit me that the work we were doing was such a lovely path where the momentum was upward and onward, but it wasn't a straight line. It was, you know, a process. And some of the time, it would move forward. And some of the time would have to come back around itself, if you can imagine a spiral, you know, a coil. And I said to, and I drew it up in a very crude way that day. And what you've seen in the books is done by a graphic artist. So I'm not that good an artist. But I said to the client at that point, uh, there are no mistakes here. There's no judgment here. This, those little loops around the, you know, that go around the spiral are actually great opportunities for learning. In the past, you might have said, for example, you had a binge and you might've said, oh my God, I blew it, I binged. What did I do wrong? What's wrong with me? That whole net negative downward spiral. 
And I said, no, 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 this is the time to be neutral, to be loving to yourself, to be able to say, ah, I can take a look at what was happening. Maybe I, in this case with the binge, maybe I didn't eat enough food all day and my survival part of the brain sent out neuropeptide Y to get me to binge. Or maybe I was still holding some negative thoughts about foods and all foods, I had not made all foods emotionally equivalent, which is a term that I like. Um, or maybe it was just a really hard day and I just needed a lot of food to comfort myself. So let's look at that. Let's, you know, see what parts of that you might, and you know, in the future change, which parts of it you can give yourself compassion for so that it doesn't lead to a, you know, negative uh, feelings about yourself. And it just stuck for me. It was just it. It just was a beautiful image. And looking at it going upward with an arrow going up, it's all the momentum is always upward and onward because there's learning along the way. So that's where that came from. Okay. The inner child work. Oh, wow. Okay. So that really came from years and years of psychoanalysis that I went through with a Kleinian analyst. Melanie Klein was a uh, a psychoanalyst who studied under Freud, but went a completely different direction. And my analyst was a Kleinian analyst, and she taught me about Melanie Klein's beliefs. And Melanie Klein had um, studied children to understand the emotions of children because she felt that that was the best way to explain to people and help people reduce anxiety. And so she went out and did field work with all these little kids and saw some amazing things. Little kids have no filter. Little kids are just willing to go over to another kid and grab a toy from them or, you know, hit somebody or, you know, hysterically have a tantrum on the floor and not care what people think. And her belief was, and I believe it deeply because I still have my little kid inside of me at, you know, my age, um, that we retain all of those feelings that little kids have. And most people and don't want to know about it. Most people don't want to know about the parts of themselves that might be the you know, shadow parts of themselves, the rage, the vindictiveness, the jealousy, the envy, the things that oh, I've heard people say, oh, I'm not a jealous person or, oh, no, I never get that angry. And, you know, that's not true. We keep all of those parts in us. And the job is to. Uh, be in touch with those parts so that they don't act out. And I really believe that when my clients start to understand those feelings and often understand that it's the little kid that's attached to the eating disorder voice, it's there, it was developed as a way to protect them, as a way to uh, get them through when they knew no other way. And when it emerges as an adult, they're able to take their their kind and nurturing adult and have a nice dialogue and conversation with that little kid and calm the little kid down and let the little kid know that they're being taken care of. And it's phenomenal in my work. I would say that it's the one of the most important pieces of my work when people start to understand uh, where they're coming from and where these feelings are coming from. I had one client who said um, that she had she had loved to have dinners, really big, beautiful dinners. And she started to go to the gym with her husband in the evenings. And when she'd come home and make this big dinner, she would feel sick the next day because she'd go to bed with all this food in her. And she ended up having a conversation with her little kid. She, I'm trying to remember what she called her little kid. There was some name um, that she called her and let her know that, yes, you want to be able to have this big dinner. And I understand and we're going to not feel well tomorrow. And so 
it's okay. There's lots of meals. Tomorrow we can have a big dinner. And it calmed down her little kid and allowed her to make the best decision for herself, you know, where she could go to sleep and not, you know, feel indigestion while she was sleeping. And the other thing was she noticed that by not eating so late in the morning, she was hungrier and she enjoyed her breakfast more. So and that's just a little example. Oh, she called it. No, I can't remember now. I have to, I have to go back to my notes to see what name she called her little kid. But the point is that this kind of understanding is amazing. And it is really also connected to Eric Erickson's work. Uh, I don't know if any of your listeners know anything about the, it's called the eight stages of man, which, <laughs> you know, at this point, it would be Dr. Erickson, please change the name of your <laughs> of your model. Anyway, it's a it's about the developmental stages that we all go through from birth into adulthood. And the point of it is, uh, at each stage, there's what he called a psychosocial uh, task, a psychosocial crisis that had to be addressed and gotten through, in order to become a healthy adult with a healthy ego and a healthy personality. And so it's really, to me, the foundation of intuitive eating starts with the very first stage, which is um, the stage is called trust versus mistrust. And so uh, looking at the tiny, tiny little kid, that child, um, if that child is fed consistently and with nurturance, that child starts to trust that their inner signals are reliable, hunger signals, fullness signals. They're, they're reliable and they can also trust that there will be someone in their lives who will be there to take care of them. And that's the beginning. Um, and uh, it's uh, mistrust is a very uh, deep seated thing that can start early in life. And our work as uh, people who counsel people with eating disorders or with disordered eating, we then take on the role of reparenting little kids, the little kid in each of our adults who didn't get that trust early on. And through intuitive eating, they start to trust themselves again and are able to move on to other parts of their lives that they weren't able to accomplish very well. Now, the second stage of um, the psychosocial stages is that of um, autonomy versus doubt and shame. And to me, that is the key, absolute key to why diets don't work and to why intuitive eating is uh, so powerful. Uh, and at that stage, that starts around 18 months to three years. The other one was at birth to, to 18 months. And that's the stage where little kids start to walk and they start to realize that they're, you know, their own little person and they're not necessarily still attached by the umbilical cord and they can walk out of the room and come back in and find a parent is still there. They want to play with the toys they want to play with. They want to eat the foods that they want to eat and not be forced or pushed to eat things they don't like. And so if a parent is able to give that that little toddler a sense of autonomy in the ways that they can. I mean, you can't let the child run out into the middle of the street, of course, but, you know, be able to support them in doing the things that help them feel independent at that, even at that early age, help them know that if they fall down, they can get up and try again. It gives them a sense of resilience. And intuitive eating is all about this autonomy and independence and knowing that within the person, there is the wisdom about eating and nobody else is going to tell them, you know, these are my patients or the little toddlers, nobody else is gonna tell them what they have to do and what they should do and what they shouldn't do. So I mean, that's part of it. I, I don't know, I can think I've been going on and on, but amazing. It brought me to tears. I don't know if you saw me wipe my eyes. <laughs> 
across my face, but I think that's a first for our podcast episodes. I have a four and a half month old and that's why I keep muting because I have a dog and a baby. And so it's not very quiet over here at night, but, um, you know, I think about, I read some studies when, you know, he was first born about like the different cries and feeding on demand and the cortisol connection when a baby cries and they're not getting fed, or maybe you think that they're not hungry, but they're really hungry. And that increases their cortisol and those little, little bodies and that they might fall asleep because they now don't trust that food is coming. And that's their protective mechanism to like, reserve their calories to not burn off whatever they have, but then they fall asleep with that rise in cortisol and like the anxiety that that leads to in future. So like I, when you're hearing you say that, I'm like a mess. I mean, I did all that research. My baby was fed like every 35 seconds. I feel like (laughs) um, it's just so insane how much starts from like, you just justified all of that for me, like from birth, it's just incredible. And as you're talking about the cortisol, this poor little baby who has to feel so unsure and stressed and the cortisol goes up and right there is, you know, you talk about health right there, the impact on their health uh, from just not being nurtured and fed in the way that validates their, their own sense of trust, right? Insane. And food is like their first sense of development, developing trust with you or whoever is the guardian or feeding them like we're responsible for feeding a baby it's food oh it's so beautiful okay thank you (laughs) no I love it too I just think it's I just think it's amazing and how important it is uh to understand that you don't put a baby on a schedule when I don't know whether they're still around those schedules but when I was when I had, when my son was a baby and he's 50 now but uh there were people that were putting their kids on schedules so they would wake the baby up from a nap to feed the baby, or they would make the baby wait because it wasn't the you know exact amount of hours they were told. And it's horrifying to me. Horrifying. How can that child trust anything within, you know, within them when nobody is responding to their their voice? What's a baby's voice? It's a cry, you know. That hunger cry is a painful yeah. cry. <laughs> it's a brutal cry. <laughs> I literally, right before we pressed record, my dad was with my baby and I was like, if he cries after he finishes this, just give him more because that means he's not done. Like, And we will have to have a little conversation perhaps when he's six months old and you start giving him some solid foods because I got a lot of thoughts about that. Too. <laughs> I can't wait to hear. We'll have yeah. to do part two of this. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's a good segue. One of the last questions Sam and I wanted to ask you because you are the the expert on all the things, but specifically with teens. And so I know that you have the intuitive eating teenage workbook, which we both recommend to anyone that asks, I do not work with children. Um, and I don't know if Sam's practice does, do you? We do. Okay. Sam works with teens. I don't. So I recommend them either to Sam or I give them the book to start, but you know how I get a lot of questions in my DMs. Like, how do you plant the seeds of intuitive eating with teenagers who are on TikTok and Instagram and social media that tell them the complete opposite of what Yeah, I have the best answer for that. I have things. And I do want to say to you, first of all, that I use my intuitive eating workbook for teens with my adult clients. 
it's because, as I said, we have that toddler in us, but we also have that teen in us. And so uh, adults who can start to understand, uh, number one, why diets don't work, and number two, tune into the years when often their eating problems began, when they got disconnected from their intuitive wisdom. So I just wanted to say, even if you don't work with teens, you can use the book with, um, with adults too. Okay, Amazing. so the first chapter of that book is why, I don't ever remember the exact names, but something like, what's wrong with diets? And I explore in that chapter, their developmental stage, the teens of needing to be independent and autonomous, you know, again, after toddlerhood, it shows up again, big time in teen, teen years. And I uh, expressed to them how maybe there's a lot in their lives that they have no power or control over, because so much is being told to them about what to do and how to do it and when to do it. But they do have the potential for being autonomous and making decisions for themselves in terms of their eating. And that there's so much emphasis on in social you know, media on diet culture and that intuitive eating is the polar opposite because diet culture is now telling them what they should eat, what they shouldn't eat, what they should do, which really replicates <laughs> their feelings as a teenager in the home usually. And, and intuitive eating gives them the opportunity to have this place where they can be independent and autonomous. And they really love that because it's an acknowledgement of what they're going through as teenagers and how frustrating it is for them to have so little agency in their life, so little, so, you know, such a little power in their lives to do what they want. And uh, here they can buy into this and, you know, be able to validate their needs, their autonomy needs. Is there a problem with the <laughs> no okay so you're looking at i thought maybe the thing had shut off in any yeah. case so me and technology i'm terrible so um and the other piece of it that i am just so happy about is that i have found with most teens i work with they are really open to my conversations about social justice they seem to be wanting to go out there and protest and they want equality and they want you know, it's the Black Lives Matter and the, and, you know, the Me Too movement and all of the, um, you know, thrust in the world for um, fighting oppression. And when I help them understand that diet culture is an oppression, it is a way of uh, creating stigma for anybody who doesn't fit into that culturally, you know, the culturally based ideal, they just buy in. It's like, whoa, I would have never thought of that. That's amazing. And it, it's so I, I actually love working with teens because they're, they're not so, um, their thoughts are not so entrenched as some adults are. And they're open and they love this piece of it. So those would be the two ways, helping them understand autonomy and how, how diets are the, you know, antithesis of autonomy or diets or, or diet culture telling, you know, telling them what to eat or what size they should be and what they shouldn't eat and, and, um, and how important social justice is. And they just, they just lap it up. So that's amazing. And I think that that makes sense though, what you're saying, because I feel like working with some adults, if they've been set in their ways for so long, right. A lot of the clients we've worked with have been dieting for 30, 40, 50 years. So they've had this they're professional dieters, right? They have this way of thinking versus when you're getting someone as a teenager, they're more open and, and just more open to thinking differently, which is amazing. And then th thinking back to what you've been talking about, about this inner child, 
um, some of these adults that we work with, like, and I'm sure you have similar stories, but just, you know, they're talking there. I have 50 year olds or, you know, people in their fifties that are still talking about their parents that are alive, that food shame them or food police them or, and so they get the, you can see in session that they become that child in front of you when they're talking about that. And one thing that we, we were thinking about too, before we started this episode is, and I feel like it pulls into your healing spiral or the spiral of healing as well is the challenging the food police, right. Mm -hmm. And how all of these voices that are in our heads usually come from somewhere. And so, so many of our clients have these voices of the food police or the diet rebel or the nutrition informant. And it's, can you just touch on just briefly of like how important it is to identify these voices in our head? Yes. And before I do, the first thing that hit me when you were talking about being able to see the child in your clients um, Eric Byrne, who was um, the psychologist who created transactional analysis, he said that he was able to see in a session his client go from the child to the teen to the adult in, you know, in body language and what they said in their facial expressions. And so you're validating that right now. I just wanted, mm-hmm. I just wanted to tell you that. And um, so the second part of the question, I'm sorry, or the first. (laughs) No, it's okay. And I think it goes off of that. I think in your training, when I became a certified intuitive eating counselor, Uh you, I think you specifically had the audio clip about challenge the food police. And you were talking about the ego. You were talking about the authoritative parent, neutral adult, rebellious child. So I guess my question back to the question was how important is it for people in their intuitive eating journey to identify these voices in their head and where they come from? What I like to tell clients is that we're all born with instincts and we're all born with emotions. Everybody, every baby has the instinct cry when they're hungry um, and they have emotions and they're not born though with thoughts and beliefs. And when you think about a baby, your four month old, your, ba- your, your baby is going to learn to speak English because you speak English in your home. Your baby is going to take on your beliefs and the way you bring him up. And so I help people understand that the beliefs they have and the thoughts that come from those beliefs had to have been put into them from somewhere. They were not born with them. And so starting to identify whether it's a parent or a grandparent or a pediatrician that gave them a, a, this message um, is very is going to really help them challenge that and understand whether that's a, you know, whether it's a helpful um, message, usually it's not a helpful message and um, what parts of themselves uh, are being activated by those thoughts. So I really, really like to help them, uh, encourage them get to that nurturing voice. When any of the other more negative voices come up, you know, whether it is the nutrition informant or the, uh, the diet police or whatever of the different voices, it's like, take a deep breath and think about how you have so much wisdom within you and you have the ability to confront those voices. And the thing is, is that they start out as external voices and then people take them in and then they really internalize them and they become their voice. So there's that stage in between where it's the external voice and then they speak it because they hear it and they have that opportunity at that point to challenge it 
and not internalize it, or if they don't get that opportunity there, it's internalized, and then we have to work on shifting that internal voice. So yeah, it's very important to be in touch with that. It's so amazing how much, I mean, and as a new parent, like you just see like how much impact you have on these little baby brains. It's, it's a beautiful amount of pressure, but it is also just like hearing this and thinking about the clients that I've worked with too. It's, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to raise a child. And there's also so much that we have the impact. We have the power to be able to change. I believe we talked about this in a recent podcast, like stopping general ge generational diet culture in its uh -huh. tracks. Like it is so powerful and insane. And I could listen to you speak forever. <laughs> I feel like we covered so many incredible topics today. Um, but we also want to make sure that we talk about your new publications that are out and where people can get more from you um, and all that you have to offer. So before I talk about mine, I want to tell you, and this will really be to you, <laughs> uh, I have uh, two colleagues who are writing. This book will come out, I believe, in January called Raising an Intuitive Eater. I was uh -huh. given the honor of writing the foreword for this book, and Amazing. it is going to be a guidebook for all of you young parents. That's uh, so awesome. <laughs> so wonderful. I mean, uh, we have, you know, one chapter in intuitive eating about raising kids, but you can't expand on it the way uh, Sumner Brooks and Amy Severson have, uh, you know, been writing about. And so I just want to mention their book because I think it's just going to be such a uh, an addition to the whole intuitive eating family of books. So yes, the new publication. So I wrote the intuitive eating journal. I can never remember the subtitle, so I'm going to get it right here. It's your guided journey for nourishing a healthy relationship with food. And it's different than the workbooks, um, than my teen workbook or than the intuitive eating workbook, even though it looks just like it because the publisher wanted to do a set of three things that looked alike for sales. And it's got lots and lots of um, prompts and then pages for exploring, for interest, you know, introspection, for emotion, to really write, like any journal, to write out your feelings. It's not as much didactic. There is, I did do a short didactic piece at the beginning of each chapter, and then it's prompts to really look within. And so that's the Intuitive Eating Journal, just came out last week. And the other one is the Intuitive Eating Card Deck, and it's called 50 bite-sized, I should memorize this, 50 <laughs> bite-sized ways to make peace with food. And it is so fun. It's uh, 50 different cards, obviously, 10 principles, about five uh, cards per principle. And it's a kind of a quick way to review intuitive eating or for people who don't know anything about it, to not have to feel like they have to read the density of the book, which is a fabulous book, of course, the fourth edition. And it's really dense. And some people get very overwhelmed. I was just talking to the mother of a teenager who uh, apparently was, I haven't seen the teenager yet, but apparently very overwhelmed because she bought her the book, you know, not my teen book, but the book. So this is a way to um, just kind of explore intuitive eating without having to do any writing. And so I think that each one kind of leads to the other, you know, the, the, the text, the textbook, the intuitive eating is not really a textbook, but it's the kind of Bible of intuitive eating fourth edition, and then being able to explore thoughts and feelings uh, in the workbooks and then have this, I, I think I put on Instagram, 
which I'm very bad at. I am not a good Instagrammer. I have a lot of followers, but I don't know why, because I don't post that often. But I put a picture of the cards and I said, take a card or pick a card, any card, and it'll change your life. And I kind of see it like a tarot card deck. You know, you just pull one out and what's ever on there is what you need to be working on or thinking about. So um, those are the books. There's, I guess there's five books now. And um, to find me, I have my own website, which is EliseResh.com, which is different than the intuitiveeating.org website, because that uh, the intuitiveeating.org is more generalized and it gives um, some abstracts of the studies. There are over 140 studies now validating intuitive eating as an evidence-based process for mental and physical health. And um, my website, I've got some personal things, a uh, history of intuitive eating. I've got um, uh, links to some podcasts I've done and I hadn't done yours yet and some um, talks and some, some things I've written. And also I have a section on my words of wisdom, that things I've gathered over my life that I, you know, that I just want to give to people and book recommendations. So there's, that's EliseRush.com. I am on Instagram as EliseRush. I am on Facebook. I am on Twitter. And every now and then, you know, I, I do post something. I must say that I, I typed my master's uh, thesis on a typewriter with whiteout computers, personal computers were, did not exist at the time. So uh, technology is a challenge for me, but I, I, I do pretty well. Yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say you have thousands and thousands of followers. So from a typewriter <laughs> to Instagram, you can do it all. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here with us, Elise. We enjoyed every minute of it and cannot wait to share this message with so many people. Well, I enjoyed talking to the both of you too. I mean, it was really fun. I have two new friends now. And my <laughs> cheeks hurt from smiling so much. So thank you for every single minute. Like Sammy said, uh, we are so grateful. Guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of What the Actual Fork Pod. We know there are a lot of pods out there and we are so grateful that you are here listening with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, like, share with all your friends and faves and follow along with us on social at what the actual fork pod. We promise to continue to bring you the hottest topics, greatest guests, and the most fun you can possibly have while fighting diet culture bullshit. We love you. We appreciate you. And we will see you next week for a lot more fun.